Welcome to the Legal Lowdown Podcast by Barton Gilman. I'm your host, Diana Baudet. Today, I'm here with Greg Van Den Eichel to discuss the newly proposed Title IX regulations released by the Secretary of Education on November 16th and published in the Federal Register on November 29th. Greg is an experienced education lawyer at Barton Gilman who represents Massachusetts and Rhode Island schools, students, and families in federal and state court. He also routinely drafts education policies and provides counsel to schools to ensure they comply with federal and state laws. Greg joined us back in November for a podcast discussing the then-leaked Title IX guidelines by the New York Times, which is on our website. Welcome back, Greg, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me back. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos has now formally proposed changes to the enforcement of Title IX, which is a statute that deals with gender-based discrimination and sexual misconduct in schools. Can you give us a little bit of a history of um, the beginnings of Title IX and then what occurred under the Obama administration and why the changes under Betsy DeVos are so significant? Sure. And I think that'll give us a kind of a good roadmap as to why these changes matter and will have an impact on students, families, schools. So the Title IX uh, is part of the 1972 education amendments. It bars discrimination on the base of sex at any educational institution that receives Department of Education funding. So what that means is any public school, K through 12, school of higher education, or even a private school, or um, in some instances, even a nonprofit that receives Department of Education funding, they are, um, they are obligated to comply with Title IX's rules barring sex discrimination on campus and in the effectuation of their education program. At its earliest, Title IX was... Most well-recognized and known in the context of uh, sports on university campuses, and you may recall that you know, particularly in the, uh, the 70s, 80s, and even maybe the early 90s, there was a lot of press of making sure that female athletes were provided with the same uh, resources and opportunities in athletic fields um, and athletic sports, so making sure that there were the same number of um, teams across various types of sports. And that was kind of the primary mechanism by which people understood Title IX. Since then, um, particularly uh, starting in the Obama administration, Title IX has become more well-connected and recognized with um, sexual harassment, sexual assault, sexual misconduct on university campuses and in the K-12 through environment. Um, and in 2011, Obama released um, what's called a Dear Colleague letter, which is essentially um, – guidance from the Department of Education that drastically changed how sexual harassment was um, understood, responded to, and trained upon in um, in the school con- context. And, and under, under that guidance, and it's important to realize that it's, it, it was guidance, it wasn't a regulatory change to Title IX. So there were questions as to its enforceability throughout its entire applicable period. But under that guidance, uh, sexual harassment was essentially defined as any unwanted conduct of a sexual nature. Someone could file a complaint under Title IX uh, when experiencing that conduct. And it was broadly applied. There were strong mandatory reporting requirements at that time. Basically, any employee, volunteer, uh, independent contractor of a school um, was required to report 
any situation of which they had actual knowledge or that they should have had knowledge of um, suspected or known sexual harassment or sexual conduct. They were supposed to, uh, they were obligated to report that conduct to uh, a Title IX coordinator, which all schools were required to have. And the schools were also required to have grievance procedures that outlined what due process was available to both the accusers and the, um, the alleged perpetrators. And uh, schools were to develop policies and train on those policies. And that's kind of where it stood between 2011. And then in 2017, the Trump administration um, rescinded the 2011 guidance and took a much narrower view of sexual harassment and, and the due process rights available in the sense that the new guidance that was released in 2017 um, tried to provide even more equal due process to to both the accuser and the alleged perpetrator because the administration felt that the pendulum had swung too far for Title IX protecting the rights of the um, the accuser. So uh, in 2017, with the with the Trump administration's guidance, sexual harassment was going to be defined as similar to like almost in the employment law context as severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive conduct that affected a, a person's ability to access the education program. So a much more narrow definition of, of sexual harassment and the guidance had uh, revisions to the due process requirements. And what we've now seen in the newly published regulations is for the first time, the regulations concerning sexual harassment under Title IX. There had always been guidance before, and now the 2017 guidance letter is being essentially turned into regulations. And is it the same, that 2017 guidance letter and these published regulations, are they mirroring each other, or are there differences? There are differences. There are They are not identical. Um, and in between the 2017 guidance and the November um 29th publication of the new regulations. Actually, the uh, the regulations were leaked, and the New York Times, which the fir- was the first um, outlet to to publish these leaked guidance, and 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 this was back in August. This was in August of 2018. Correct. The leaked regulations and the regulations published on November 29th are largely similar. There are there are some you know minor differences, some wording differences, and there there are some substantive differences. The most noticeable difference is that. The, the published regulations actually now, they allow for um, cross-examination of the accuser and the perpetrator during um, Title IX hearings. And I think that's a first. The Obama administration under the 2011 guidance really um, discouraged schools from allowing cross-examination due to the potential trauma it could cause to um, the, uh, the accuser. Again, because the current administration and the new regulations see the pendulum swinging back towards the, what they hope is in the middle as far as equal due process, I believe cross-examination is an integral part of the uh, the fact-finding and adjudication process. So that's going to be an interesting development to see how that plays out and what impact that has on the number of complaints are fi- that are filed. But largely, the new regulations that have been published, um, they 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 strengthen the 2017 guidance. Okay. And does the the process of being able to cross-examine, I understand that that puts pressure on the accuser. Does it put any pressure on the schools in any way? Does it add anything from a 
cost perspective? Does it lengthen the process of the investigation or hearing? Just looking towards what the schools can expect to change. Sure. So it's not the school's responsibility um, in a Title IX hearing to provide any sort of counsel or um, advocate on behalf of either the accused or the, um, the alleged perpetrator. So from that perspective, there's not a financial impact on the schools. I think what what they were they may face, particularly in the first few months, years of the implementation of these regulations, to the extent they aren't modified by the public comment period, um, that they're going to be on the hook for making sure that cross examinations were conducted within within the parameters of of their policies, and they're going schools schools are not courts. Right. You know they're they're not they're not judges who who are who are familiar with rules of evidence and um, appropriate behavior on the part of um, attorneys during a cross examination direct direct examination and and most of these parties that are going to hearings will likely hire some sort of attorney and so it's going to be a difficult task for schools to maintain some sense of decorum and particularly in these incredibly sensitive cases um, the cross examination is not by the alleged perpetrator directly towards the accused or or vice versa it's it's through an advocate mm-hmm. and the there are situations where the um the accuser need not even be in the room live um depending on the situation so schools are going to have to figure out how to make this actually happen some schools may already have cross examination in their policies most probably don't because again it was discouraged under the old guidance and i don't think a lot of schools have made systematic changes to their Title IX policies, at least and the clients that I represent have not, knowing that there were going to be these new regulations being published and ultimately adopted. So that's going to be an area where schools are really going to need to assess their risk, assess their training protocols, and make sure that those fact finders that are, that are hearing Title IX um, cases are prepared to address proper and improper cross-examination. Okay. Um, we've been hearing a lot about the changes to the um, standard of evidence. Uh, can you explain what the differences are and the impact that, that has both on students and schools? Yeah. So this is, uh, I think this is one of the most dramatic changes between the 2011 guidance and where where we will see Title IX enforcement um, go in the next few, few months and years. Um, under the Obama administration's guidance, uh, Schools uh, were required to have a preponderance of the evidence standard, uh, meaning essentially the accuser had to prove by 50% plus one that the um, the alleged perpetrator in, in fact violated Title IX and either sexually harassed or sexually assaulted the accuser. Now, again, you'll hear me say this throughout the course of this podcast, but this is the pendulum now coming um, in the other direction, the the current administration and many you know advocates who support this change um, um, believe that that was too low of an evidentiary burden for the accuser to overcome, to have to sustain. And so, the the new guidance allows schools to make a choice. They can either have a clear and convinc- convincing evidence standard, which is typically understood in, in court in the court of law as almost seventy five percent, and there are there are types of cases that have that as the standard as opposed to the typical civil standard of beyond a preponderance of the evidence, or schools can have beyond the preponderance of evidence. With that said, if they're going to have the lesser standard, they can only do that when 
all of their other sanctions and punishments and hearings related to violations of the code of conduct not related to sexual, sexual harassment also have that same standard of evidence. So if, for example, a school has a preponderance of the evidence standard for Title IX, but they have a clear and convincing standard for plagiarism, for example, that school can't use, you, under the new regulations, proposed regulations, that school can't use the, the preponderance of the evidence standard for Title IX it ha- because it's not equal with its other violations of the Code of Conduct. This is going to have a large impact on schools. Um, many, I can say that all the schools that we, that we, that I represent use the preponderance of evidence standards, what they know, it's what they've been trained on. And it's fair to say that many schools don't have the same standard of evidence for all misconduct because it's not, it's not all the same. Sure. Um, so this is going to be an area they're going to have to revisit for not only their 10 line policies, but possibly for their other codes of conduct. So schools are going to face questions particularly in the first few months when they're adjusting their policies as to why student A who filed a suit or a Title IX claim before these regulations were enacted received one standard, but now I may be receiving a – student B may be receiving a second higher standard to prove his or her case, uh, and it's just because of timing. And the schools are – I think this is going to be an area where it's going to be fraught with legal risks and – uh, schools are going to have to update their policies, their training regimen, and certainly um, identify risks that they're going to face here. And could that potentially also impact the appeals process? Do you think more students will come back and sue a school or um, a, an accuser? If Yeah, that, that's an interesting question um, <clears throat> because what we've all learned from like Law & Order or any, <laughs> any uh, criminal television show is, is double jeopardy, right? You know, if yeah. – if, 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 um, if the if the accuser couldn't make his or her Title IX case, you know, to the extent double jeopardy applies in in a Title IX in a Title IX investigation, which would be up to the school's policies, um, then that person wouldn't allow wouldn't be permitted to file another suit with this new standard. Or if they had lost, they couldn't say come back and say, well, look, now that now the accuser has to meet this new standard. I think the I think the older cases are likely going to be considered resolved. Like that that I don't think we'll see a flood of new appeals, if you will, based on that change in standard. But I do think that um, it's kind of leads into the, the, the regulations have a new appeals process and, and appeals rights. And I think that's going to be another issue, not as consequential in the sense of um, difficulty for schools implementing because uh, as the standard of evidence, but it's going to require updates to policies and, and knowledge of the new knowledge of law, new training. Um, Prior to the new to the proposed regulations, the accuser could appeal to the extent you had an appeal. So if, if he or she lost, she could appeal and seek to overturn the underlying decision. Now, to the extent a school is going to have a um, appeals process, so first appeals processes aren't required under the Title IX regulations. But if you're going to have an appeals process, an appeal has to be available to both the accused or and the alleged perpetrator. They don't both have to appeal at the same time. Like they don't have to agree to appeal, but they both have to have the option to appeal. Um, and that that's new. And again, mm-hmm. that's that's the pendulum. Do you think that overall these new regulations, once they pass the comment period, will expose schools to greater legal risk? They claim to be helping schools and providing less legal risk, less cost. As a lawyer in the field with clients doing this, do you think that's the case or do you think it's opening schools up to some unforeseen exposure? 
So I think this is kind of a nuanced answer. I think the administration may believe and that there's going to um, these regulations are going to save schools money, which is one aspect of it. But I think with any new regulation, whether or not a school is going to save money, there's going to be, I think, an increase in people filing complaints, people filing lawsuits in court, uh, simply because there's new regulations. People are going to test these test these regulations. And I think there are areas in these new regs where there are increased legal risks. I'm going to speak with my clients about to, I've, I've said this a lot so far, but it's really about training, 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 and, and policy development um, and, and policy redevelopment and redrafting. For example, I, I see maybe three major areas where there are, I think, new legal risks. And, and I know there are more, but these are three that jump out to me. The new regs, as I said, have a new definition of sexual harassment that is um, that must be established before grievance procedures are triggered. So you actually have to have met this standard of sexual harassment, this severe, pervasive, of objectively offensive. What is that? You right. know, you know, every every situation is different. And I can understand a side of the argument that the the pendulum was so far that any complaint was to be investigated. But that cost money, that cost resources, that smeared the names of well-behaved people, allegedly. Um, but now <laughs> schools, again, schools aren't lawyers and then they have lawyers, but they're the ones on the ground making the decisions. And what is severe and pervasive? What right. is objectionably offensive? And what about the subjective element that the accuser felt? And so if the, this is such a, this is such a personal, se- you know, sex discrimination, sex, sexual harassment, it's such, a, it's such a personal issue that taking the subjective element out of it, I think actually could lead to more suits because people are going to sue or they're going to file a complaint they're going to, and the school's going to say, we're going to meaningfully respond to your complaint. We have, based on what we've seen, this is not objectively offensive. Well, that's then going to lead to an appeal. That's going to lead to a suit in federal court because objectively offensive, as I understand it as a lawyer, is the reasonable person standard. Well, the school may have a different reasonable person standard, the different reasonable person than a court or a jury might. So I think that I think that's fraught with risk, particularly, is it going to be applied uniformly? Uh, you know, it, it could be severe and pervasive for one student and maybe not another. And perhaps schools were better shielded when they had to investigate everything, mm-hmm. because at least they were investigating everything. Now, right. that's not right in every situation. I get that. And it's not, it, you can't necessarily meaningfully investigate everything. But I think now, now that there's kind of like a threshold for the accuser to to get over before a formal investigation triggers the grievance procedures, that that's going to be, um, I think that's going to be an issue where they may see more um, legal risk. Similarly, the grievance procedures are only triggered under the new regulations where a formal complaint is is filed, and the regulations define a formal complaint. I represent primarily K through 12 schools, so. We have a slightly different definition, but a formal complaint is any complaint in writing that is signed by the accuser or is signed by the Title IX coordinator. And that's a big issue because while the regulations require schools to, quote unquote, respond meaningfully to all reports, they make a distinction between reports and formal complaints. Mm -hmm. So... If a school determines that the report doesn't rise to the level to the need of the Title IX coordinator signing off on it and saying, yeah, this we need to trigger the grievance procedures, then what does the school do? Under the regs, the school is supposed to provide reasonable support measures 
but what are they? You know, they're, they're supposed to be um, non-disciplinary, non-punitive sanctions. But again, what are they? And are they going to be uniformly applied? And I think you know, some students may not want to sign a formal complaint to trigger the grievance procedure because of, again, how personal this is. They don't want yeah. this to be public. And so are students going to be arguing when I file a suit in court against the school? Are they going to argue that my due process was violated because I was scared to file a formal complaint and you didn't, mm-hmm. then you didn't take any formal steps? And again, the uniform application of what's the Title IX coordinator going to sign off on as opposed to, no, this doesn't rise to the level. To me, it's this, it's this domino effect of, is it sexual harassment in this in this instance? If so, does it rise to the level of a formal complaint? And to me, because there needs to be factual determinations there, there's going to be lawsuits about decisions made. And I think schools may wind up, at least in the short term, may wind up having to defend themselves more for decisions they make at the initial um, stages. Okay. Is there a change to reporting requirements in terms of Who's a reporter? Who has to be trained on hearing a student complaint? I know under the Obama administration, it was everybody at the school, from a cafeteria worker to a professor. Has that changed with these new regulations, and what kind of impact would that have? Yep. Yeah, so the, the, you're right. Under the Obama guidance, essentially everyone was a mandatory reporter if they if they knew or should have known or had reason to know of sexual harassment as the Obama guidance defined sexual harassment. Now, under the proposed regulations in the K-12 world, reports to any teachers, so teachers are mandatory reporters, as are administrators because the a mandatory reporter is essentially anyone who has the authority to effectuate some sort of discipline um, in in and take some sort of action with respect to a sexual harassment complaint, a Title IX complaint. So that that basically covers administrators, and then in the K through twelve context, teachers. And so now, like volunteers, independent contractors, um, the cafeteria worker, as you said, they may not be mandatory reporters. Now they may have s- different functions at the school that that may mm-hmm. trigger a, a reporting requirement, but th- there's fewer mandatory reporters now. Okay. All the schools still must have a Title IX coordinator. And that's one of the absolute requirement. And that person must be trained on Title IX and how to investigate and how to move the case along in a prompt and equitable manner. And the prompt equitable language is from the statute. But as far as who conducts the hearings, who's trained on these, there's no specific identification in the regulations as to who has to be on a hearing, how many members of a panel. Does it have to be a panel? Can it be one person? But there is a requirement that Schools cannot use what's called a single investigator model. Um, and this this happens often in, in smaller schools, in particular in charter schools um, that I see where, you know, people wear many hats. Mm-hmm. Um, but now under, and under Title IX, your Title IX coordinator also can't be the adjudicator. Okay. So the Title IX coordinator is the investigator, collects all the information, but then if you're going to have a hearing— the Title IX coordinator can't make the ultimate decision. They they give the evidence to the school, and the school argues to the, whoever the hearing officer is or the, you know, who's ever leading the panel. Um, so this is going to be an issue as far as making sure your schools have enough you know, personnel resources to to fulfill all the roles um, that are going to be required going to be required under under a Title IX investigation. Okay, and on the investigation point, and you may have touched on this a little bit already, is 
everything required to be investigated. And I think you, you did mention this in a different context, that there's only specific things that now trigger it. But I didn't know if that's the hearing or is that the investigation. How is that going to work? Yeah, so to me, and this is my personal opinion of reading the, the newly proposed regulations, this is one of the uh, the muddiest areas. and mm-hmm. what, It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. You know, I've read the regulations several times, and I'm, I'm still not necessarily convinced that I understand what they're going for completely here, but they, they, the regulations seem to state, or they state that all reports of a violation of Title IX must be reasonably responded to. To me, that means investigate. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now they make a distinction that once a once a report is determined to rise to the level of a formal complaint that is found to be sexual harassment as defined by the regulations and is signed by the Title IX coordinator or accuser, then that triggers the grievance procedures that a school is required to have. So to me, this is an area, okay, the, the investigations that lead up to this decision that, that something's either a report or a formal complaint, are those investigations going to be conducted the same way? Mm-hmm. I, I, they, they need to be, in my opinion. But that's going to be a subjective issue that I think schools are going to face some challenges with. So I think the administration is trying to say that everything needs to be investigated and the the accusation reaches a certain level, assuming it does, then there is actually a grievance process. Okay. We'll see how this plays out. I, yeah. I think I think this is going to be something that we get calls from schools and they're like, what, what do we do now? I think we're all going to kind of you know, learn on the fly with this. Yeah. What is the difference between a report and a complaint? Is there any difference other than the signing? So the, based on my reading, it really is that someone has, Title IX coordinator has decided that this rises to the level of sexual harassment I see. that has occurred. This is another this is another issue we can talk about, but that has occurred at the school, meaning, you know, at a school-sponsored, act, either on the campus, at a school-sponsored activity, a school-funded you know, activity, and in the United States, to a person in the United States. And the school has actual knowledge of the sexual harassment. All of those together, if found, I think will equal a formal complaint. I think the the regulations don't define report, um, but I think, you know, basically, particularly in the summaries of the um, regulations, they use the word report, which I think is what they're trying to use as a distinction between the lower level. Like, it just, it was missing something so as not mm-hmm. to rise to a formal complaint. Okay. And I didn't, you, you're right, I wanted to dovetail uh, right into where the incident takes place, because I think that is a change from the Obama administration that, that has now been narrowed. Yeah. So this is, this, is a big, this is a big change that I think is going to have probably the most meaningful impact on schools. And that is to say that sexual harassment to rise to the level of formal complaint must occur at school. And that doesn't necessarily mean in a college dorm or in a, you know on a school in a school gym. At school can also mean at a basketball game. It can mean um, at the prom. But the question really is, particularly as you get into the higher education area, is what happens if it happen if, if an incident happens off campus? Two students and they both live off campus, or it's at a party off campus, or it's at a bar off campus. The Q and A that went along with the uh, the new regs seems to imply that geographic location of the incident is not a determinative factor. You know, it's a fact-by-fact, case-by-case analysis. But they, you know, the Q&A kind of says things that will be considered are whether or not the school paid for the function. Um, is it at a, you know, is it at school property that is off campus? What, what, was the, what was the event? 
And ultimately, what some schools may argue is that if it was off campus, that's a law enforcement issue because that's not at our school, if you want to use at our school in quotes. Now, the issue I think schools are going to face is that I interpret Title IX to basically bar discrimination so far as so that it doesn't adversely impact a student's ability to access their education, right? So if a if, a, if an incident happens off campus and a student says, I can't go to class anymore, I, you know, I'm scared, you know, this person may be in that class or I'm just, I can't get out of bed and now they're missing classes, they're, you know, not handed in assignments. Well, I would argue that they're not accessing their education. And I think the school could be facing some risk if they say, well, no, no, that happened off campus. That's that's a law enforcement issue. This is going to be litigated heavily, I think. And we'll, um, you know, perhaps the regulations will be clarified at some point. But I, I think this is going to be a, one of the higher risk areas for schools. And, you know, for just as a aside on this issue, as far as Mostly colleges, although high school, some high schools have study abroad programs or you know um, week long programs. The new regulations specifically state that the alleged violation of Title IX has to happen in the United States, and that on its face would would preclude Title IX complaints during study abroad programs. And I think that's the same issue. What happens when the student comes back and is sure. is you know unable to access his or her education? Schools are not going to be able to just say, well, it happened study abroad. Even The regulations say it happened study abroad. It may hold up in court, perhaps, but you're going to be litigating that for a while. Yeah, which is going to cost more. Right, exactly, <laughs> <And> then... <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay. And, you know, maybe perhaps that flies in the face of why they made these changes. That'll be one that we, we can literally say we will see. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when do you think we can expect the public comment period to officially close? What do you think we'll see from that? You know, if there are a lot of comments, what then happens? Do you know? Is it Does it vary based on administration? Right. So as we said at the outset, the new regs were published in the Federal Register in, on November 29th. Under federal law, the public comment period is 60 days. So that comments close on January 28th, 2019. My understanding is as of today, there's something between like 45, maybe 50,000 public comments that have been made. Most of the comments are submitted through like an online portal. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I highly expect that there will be two, three, five-fold more comments before January 28, 2019. But as of January 28, 2019, comment period closes. The administration will review the comments, will consider the comments, may make changes to the um, to the new regulations, may not. That, that le That's left to be seen. Ultimately, once the comment period closes, to the extent there are any changes, the, the, they will they will revise the regulations. Likely announce what the revisions are. I'm not an administrative law specialist. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I don't know one way or the other whether or not if changes are made, there needs to be public comment on those Again. changes. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, at some point, I, I would say in the next six months, we will see new Title IX regulations. And um, until that period, schools should you know, essentially be operating under the guidance of the 2017 Dear Colleague letter um, from the Trump administration. But I know that, you know, particularly a lot of my schools, too, are also kind of mixing and matching the 2011 guidance and the 2017 guidance. And come spring of 2019, I think we're going to be in a new era. Okay. Yeah, a lot of confusion. A lot of confusion, a lot of, lot of change. And I think you know, a lot of new responsibilities and some hard work that's going to have to take place over— um, 
you know, once these new regulations go in, go in place, because these types of claims, whether or not there's Obama regulations, Trump regulations, next president regulations, they're not going anywhere. Sure. And so, um, you know, schools need to they need to have policies. They need to know their policies. They need to train, and they need to um, you know communicate with their communities to let them know that we're here. And you know, we understand the difficulties associated with these with these situations, and we're here to resolve these these complaints. Okay, Greg, thank you for joining us today. And for more information about changes in the laws around Title IX, please check out the news section of our website for clients, alerts, and blogs by Greg. And for more information about Greg or to contact him, his bio can also be found on our website. As always, you can find other Legal Lowdown podcasts, including the November podcast I talked about earlier. Greg and I discussed the August leaked proposed guidelines. And you can find those podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, or on our website under podcasts in the news section. Thanks again, Greg, and thanks to our listeners. Thank you very much. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information. Barton Gilman is a leading civil litigation law firm with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York. Our attorneys represent a variety of clients in a wide range of matters, and our trial attorneys appear regularly in the federal and state courts of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and New York, as well as before various administrative agencies. Barton Gilman and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades, including 2017 Champions for Justice, 2015 Outstanding Philanthropic Business, Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms, Best Places to Work Rhode Island, and Super Lawyers, to name just a few. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903.